my definition of an artist, and I never thought of myself my art, as an artist my whole life long. I've always thought of myself as just a form kid, you know, who was doing what he liked to do. Uh, but an artist is someone who is really sensitive to their feelings, really sensitive to uh, all the emotions that pass through your, through your brain and your heart during the day. And an artist is a person who figures out how to express those to those around him. And if you reduce animation to making a movie that will make money or taking home a salary, some of that gets eclipsed. Some of that and the joy that comes from creating the artwork isn't really as grand as if you can actually create and I, and I find a lot of people, everyone I believe is, is born to create. You have it in you, and you're scared out of you, or maybe programmed out of you by the school system, by your parents, by the churches, by you know whatever. It's programmed out of you. And uh, so pretty soon, what I seem to get to, <laughs> to me is artists who are afraid. They're afraid to express their emotions. Maybe they don't even know what they are. Or they're afraid to um, take chances. Don Bluth or, or knew much about who it was or what he was about, right? Because I just didn't, uh, didn't follow that kind of shit, you know? But it's interesting because I was heavy into his stuff almost more than Disney movies when I was a mm-hmm. kid. Um, like, I, I mean, Fievel was weirdly, and Fievel Goes West were like two weirdly influential movies on me that I was mega obsessed with for a long time. Um, and I always thought they were Disney movies until I was fairly old. Uh, and then I figured <laughs> out that he was like, he was doing a lot of what, like, uh, like Pixar and DreamWorks, uh, DreamWorks. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just fucking hate that company. Um, what Pixar and DreamWorks are doing in comparison to Disney now, it was kind of like, that's what he was doing throughout the seventies uh, and eighties. And that's just, I don't know. It's fascinating to me. And then there's, um, what is it? Imagination, the, the minion guys. Right? Oh, are they their own studio. Yeah, I choose to believe they don't exist. Whoever they are, <laughs> that's a fair, fair belief. Uh, yeah. yeah, I didn't even know. Actually, I, I didn't. I didn't know that was their own thing. I figured that was some, some part of DreamWorks or some bullshit. Who made uh, so Minions are their own thing? Is it just Minions or it's is, Minions and the rest of me? Okay, and they've done. They did Sing. Oh, okay. And, so they are um, headed by some sort of fucking actual demon, is what you're telling me. <laughs> Yeah, they're a French sort of company. Actual hell spawn summoned into this Christian earth to plague yeah. us with fucking bad memes that grandma's like. Awesome. And on that note, I think we should start the show. You're listening to Geek Squatch, the podcast all about 80s and 90s nerd nostalgia. I'm your host this week, Caleb McAllister, and we're going to be talking about one man's life and contribution to our childhoods because he is probably one of the most influential people in any 80s kid's life and 90s kid's life for that matter uh and he is just a feature and staple in animation in in the industry of animation that is don bluth so this is our first episode highlighting one person and um, we're not going to like talk about everything all the films in detail obviously because we want to do episodes on that in the future but we're going to talk about his life and and all the things he did so when we do talk about um the movies that he created you will know who he is you know and we'll we'll link back to this episode when we cover his films as always i'm joined by my co-host alex hirsch what's up alex oh hey hi hello uh i just i got a lot of research later this evening i guess because Finding out that minions are part of part of their own thing is—I don't know how to handle it, man. You know what I mean? Like, I just—I <laughs> yeah. feel like I feel like there should be laws against it. Yeah, it's—I uh, didn't know that either. I, and then I found it out, and my mind was also blown. Well, I just—I uh, just feel like if there was—if there was—if there were a god, okay, there's no way if there was any sort of like oversight over this shit, there's no way that this could be its own company. It would have to be. Some sort of oversight, some sort of under the table project that somebody let their brother do, 
out of like Disney or something. That was what I thought the whole time. But no, as it turns out, the minions are their own actual thing that someone let happen for real on purpose. Anyway, Don Bluth, though, like that's exciting. Um, I watched a couple a couple of his films this morning, his uh, animated specials. They're very short also, which is nice. They're about 90 minutes. Yeah, I like a I like a nice tight sort of animated situation where it's not a, a long drawn out thing, but it's also not like I don't like 60 minute things. You know what I mean? I don't want to sit mm. down for the hour long, basically two part or after school special. I'd rather see that that good 80 to 90 minute mark. Amazing. <laughs> it's yes. so It's so nice. Uh, as always, if you got something to say about the show, you should call and leave us a message at 540-692-9165. And we actually got a call from one of our regular boys, Boogie. Bogey? Bogey. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, Bogey. That seems, I was going to say, it seems like you're making fun of him now. No, I'm not. Not at all. He's he's a great man. He calls us probably like once every three to six months and leaves us a very wonderful voicemail. And he has some questions. So I'm going to let Alex address like the main question he had so take it away, Alex. So uh, we have had some format changes, um, which Bogey highlighted. He said, uh, you know, hey, man, you know, you guys, your format is kind of all over the place now. Um, and it's true. Think We are kind of in a transitionary period because I would say probably obviously at this point, if you've been listening chronologically, uh, Colin and Brandon have taken a break from the show. Colin's focusing a little bit more on... Um, Using what little bit of free time he has as a father of young boys, um, he's taking a little bit more time to kind of focus on video games and uh, relaxation, things that aren't quite like kind of like having a third job or a second job. Uh, and Brandon sort of is in the same bank in that uh, he's got new um, responsibilities with work and things like that. So uh, they're both taking a bit of a break. They're still part of the show. You know, they're still, uh, you know, they're, they are, they have an open chair here. Uh, just imagine them being out sick. For a little while, and uh, hopefully at some point they'll both be back on on a more permanent basis. But for now, at least, you're stuck with Caleb and I and whatever rotating uh, guest host that we can manage to shoo in for that week. Uh, and, and another point to that, the format change will depend on the subject. So we have an open format. Uh, we try to keep it you know, relatively the same, but each subject sometimes requires a little bit of a shift. So like tonight. We're talking about one man, not a movie, not a, a musical band or um, a toy or a top 10 list or top five list. We're talking about one person, Don Bluth. Right. If you're unfamiliar with that name, I can say three movies that will trigger all sorts of memories to come back to your mind. One, The Secret of Nim. Two, The Land Before Time. And three, An American Tale. If you have not watched one of those three films... You should go do that right now. If you're under the age of 30, um, I would also say Anastasia. Ah, true. What Excellent a movie point. that is, actually. Yeah. Um, I think, honestly, growing up, I watched a lot of American Tale. Um, I don't think I saw The Secret of Nim until I was like 16 or 17. It just it just never came up. I'm the oldest mm-hmm. in my family, so... Um, you know, if I wasn't into it as a kid, if it was from sort of before when I was born, nobody was into it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um so I got caught that a little bit later. Land Before Time, of course, you know, it's a, it's an, I feel like it's just an American or maybe a, a generational staple worldwide. Uh, but Anastasia is where I, I I would say that Anastasia might be my favorite Don Bluth movie. If not, honestly, I'm going to like look around and make sure no one's watching. You know, I fucking really like Titan AE, like a lot. <laughs> that movie's good. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's I saw a cool recently. movie. Yeah, and I, and I was like, hey, it's not that bad. Uh, so let's talk about the man, uh, the myth, the legend, so to speak. Don Bluth was born in El Paso, Texas, the son of Emmeline and Virgil Bluth, uh, their eighth child. Uh, yeah. <laughs> His great grandfather was uh, Helaman Pratt, an elder, uh, or sorry, an early leader in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Um, so if you're not familiar with that, that means that Don was a Mormon. Is, is a Mormon, actually. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, as a child in El Paso, he rode his horse to the town movie theater to watch movies, but it was the Walt Disney's uh, classic Snow White and the Seven Dwarves that would spark his passion for animation. After watching Disney films and cartoons, Booth would go home and copy every Disney comic book he could find. At the age of six, his family moved to Payson, Utah, where he lived on a family farm. I'm not quite sure what the situation is, but um, 
seem like they need to move back home. Yeah. And so I think in my research, I came across uh, that not only his brother, but I believe also his, one of his parents were artists, maybe, or at least hobbyist artists. Um, because I remember I, I read something about when he would come home and draw these um, draw these Disney, Disney comics or, or draw from these Disney books, um, that it was his brother who participated in that with him. And um, it was seemed to be a recurring theme that he had family who not only supported what he did uh, in being a 1950s man growing up in the Mormon church, which is – it's not that they um, – well, we can get into that later, I guess. It's not that they look down on things like artists or, or, or you know, anything like that. But in 1950s America, a man who wanted to grow up and be an artist is just like a man who wants to grow up and be in theater or anything else, which you will see. It's also sort of linked here. Um, it's not being an engineer or a farmhand or a soldier. You know what I mean? So at some point, it's it's kind of cool to see, to feel like some of his family was in on this with him. Yeah, so, and then in 1954, his family moved to Santa Monica, California, uh, South Southern California, if you're not familiar uh, where that is, where he attended part of his final year of high school um, before returning to Utah and graduating from Springville High School, which I assume to be um, the high school where he spent the first four years of, of his education. Mm-hmm. So he just wanted to be back with friends, which I can totally, I, I think it's really cool that his parents allowed him to do that, you know, even after moving. Um, and then no surprise to anyone, if you're Mormon, he attended Brigham Young University for a year, um, but he cut his studies short because he got his dream <laughs> job. He got a job at Walt Disney Productions in 1955 as an assistant to John Lunesbury working on Sleeping Beauty, but he was uncredited for his work. Mm-hmm. So in 1957, he left Disney only two years into what was supposed to be, you know, the gig to get. But why? Well, Any ideas? You know, being Mormon, he he, he needed to go on a mission uh, for the Latter Day uh, Latter Day Saints Church, Mormon Church. So Don spent two and a half years in Argentina uh, doing missionary work. Not a bad place to spend it. I know people who spent it in uh, colder places uh, like the Ukraine or Russia. Fifties um, Argentina would be interesting, though. I think I think it would be different because I know people who have done work in South and Central America and. Uh, I feel like 50s Argentina would probably be a whole different kind of animal. You know what I mean? As far as acclimating from <laughs> acclimating from Southern, Calif- Southern California slash Utah to 1950s Argentina might have been pretty wild, I would imagine. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so when he returned to the United States, he opened the Bluth Brothers Theater with his younger brother, Fred, in Culver City, California. Again, Southern California. Um, though he occasionally worked for Disney on the side, most notably working on the sword and the stone again, uncredited for his work. The cool thing about the Bluth brothers theater was a live theater doing traditional plays and musicals where Fred actually directed the actors and Don directed the music. I I found uh, a wonderful, uh, obituary from one of the actors who would play there. And and he said they ran a tight ship. They were fair and they were professional. Um, and I think it's fascinating that they had this, I think it was like about five to six years where they worked together on the theater. I, I'm not sure what happened afterwards. I assume it continued on after Don left um, as he would so soon go back to Disney. But um, it was really nice to hear that they were like had a really nice place. Like the people who acted there, the, the troopers loved it. It seems. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's interesting. I would think, right? Because what is the there's, – there's a creative performative aspect of uh, obviously theater and also animation, right? Animation is a little less um, personal relationship with your audience, right? But it still is a very personal act of creation. Uh, I just think it's it's kind of cool that these two brothers decided like, what the hell? Let's open a theater and see what happens. And by all accounts, it, it – you know, like you said, it was a, it was a warm – uh, place that that functioned and uh, I don't know I just, it's this guy the more the more that I read about him the, the more interesting he is you know I always thought that he was just some asshole that graduated college and graduated college and started making movies you know right right uh, so then Bluth returned to college again and got a degree in English literature from Brigham Young so he went back um, but the weird thing is he got this degree in English lit and then went right back to animation 
And he got hired on at Filmation in 1967, working as a layout artist for like the Archies. And he had a whole bunch of other like weird 60s tie-in cartoons that none of us would be familiar with. Filmation, however, Mm. most 80s kids would remember it for the place that created He-Man. Yeah, as well as every other every other late '80s cartoon that uh, tied into a toy line. <laughs> Filmation was so huge on that shit. Uh, so, in 1971, he would return to Disney, where he worked on Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh, and Tigger Two, and the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh as a character animator, and then would quickly rise uh, in stature on The Rescuers as animation director and Pete's Dragon as director of animation. Yeah, two titles that seem incredibly similar, though, must be different. I don't know how. Yeah. Okay. Like, (laughs) and it's kind of interesting to go from that, that rise in such a short amount of time. You know what I mean? To go from animator to fucking director of animation on Disney products, right? Well, uh, Robin Hood took like three or four years of production to you know be released, and the Winnie the Pooh and Tigger two series probably was less. But you know there were only a handful of movies released in the seventies from Disney. I, I counted four. Yeah, yeah, there aren't many, and, and also Robin Hood is something that we sh- I don't know how much we can actually really focus on because it's sort of before our scope a little bit. But uh, my God, I have probably seen that movie four hundred times. Yeah, it's Jamie's favorite <laughs> Disney movie. Really enough, yeah, she loves it. I would put and it in my a, top five, probably. It's a complete failure if you look at the the box office compared to I'm the sure. cost. I'm sure it was abysmal. Um, they did reuse a lot of the scenes in that movie, though, for other films that were released in the 70s and 80s. Um, you can see direct animation ripoffs, which is smart on their part. You know, they're reusing yeah. the same cells and just changing the characters and stuff. So his last involvement with Disney was the 1978 short, The Small One, which he would get absolutely no credit for once again, even though he was both the initial producer and director <laughs> of the project. So he's he's basically the initial drive and vision. It gets taken over because he leaves Disney, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And it just they just wipe him clean. I, I don't know. It's just kind of crazy to me. You don't get any kind of recognition. But that's show business, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's. I don't know how po- how possible that is in, you know, 2018, but uh, surely in 78, Disney, I mean, even even though the 70s were dark for Disney, I mean, it was still fucking Disney, you know what I mean? I guess they could they could have one of those meetings where they call you in and tell you you'll never work in this town again, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely in that time. Uh, so it was around the time that he was working on the small one that Don and some of his Disney animators made and produced a short film called Banjo the Woodpile Cat, which is a horrible title uh it takes place in i kind of want a cat named banjo (laughs) yeah yeah i know the cat name is fine the woodpile cat is what bothers me that makes this cat seem better to me i'm not really i'm not gonna lie to you i don't know man (laughs) out here out where i live we value uh we value just mangy mouser cats you know what i mean oh i have two mouser cats i don't have to worry about that uh yeah they catch all sorts of stuff all the time which is great. Um, so that takes place in Dabu's hometown of Payson, Utah, during the 1940s as Banjo travels to Salt Lake City to find the urban world and just find out that it's not for him. Uh, Don Which is also music. a weird recurring theme in like all of Don Bluth's work. Yeah, it's almost the, like he has one story to tell. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like the same thing that uh, all of these kind of turn-of-the-century people did, like uh, Tolkien and everyone else. It's this weird encroachment of the urban sprawl on their idyllic homelands. Yeah, I mean, there are only, what, like seven types of stories, right? And this is just the one that was very popular. I suppose that's true. It's man versus nature kind of thing, you know? Yeah, man versus progress, I think it would be that yeah, one. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's what, yeah. Man versus nature, sure, yes. Yes, all of these men hating <laughs> hating their radishes. <laughs> uh, so here's a tie-in back to the, the Blue Theater Company, actually, is that Don wrote the music and the lyrics to all the songs in Ban- Banjo the Woodpile Cat, which I find f- fascinating. So he actually has some talent in that area, although he wouldn't really use it that much. I haven't personally watched Banjo, um, but I've seen clips, and it looks exactly like what you would expect from any other Don Booth film. Like the animation is amazing. In fact, a lot of the characters look like other characters, you know, like Fifel or 
um yeah or, or any of the other characters the villains in, in there look similar it's it's kind of just reeks of his style you know i imagine we'll talk kind of about that style here at some point but it is unreal how much he influenced the rest of what disney did in the 90s yes we'll definitely <laughs> talk about that uh, they were direct competition so we're almost to the point where he goes independent because while working on this short in his spare time and weekends, he approached uh, head of Disney Studios at the time, Ron Miller, um, but was rejected. You know, Ron couldn't see Banjo as commercially viable. Right. Well, I mean, think about Banjo the Woodpile Cat. <laughs> like you said, I mean, it's, first of all, it is. I God, the more I say it, the more it sounds really good. But uh, it had no brand recognition. You know what I mean? It didn't have any underlying books or, or legends or um, you know mythology to pull from, like Bambi or Pinocchio, to propel it. So. Uh, it sounds it, it sounds like a sound decision to them. I can see why they wouldn't want to take a risk on another just random sort of new intellectual property. But looking back on this decision, uh, I think Ron may have made a mistake. I would agree because I think that Ron could have said, hey, you feel really passionate about this thing. Let's find another way to do it. Maybe we tweak the character, we tweak the title. You know what I mean? Like, I mm -hmm. feel like there are ways to work with him. He's obviously extremely interested in this thing and almost an unparalleled level of talent. I would argue for a singular person, I would argue that Don Bluth is the Miyazaki of the West. You know what I mean? That's an excellent comparison, actually. I love it. That is very true. Thank you. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure someone else has said that before because it's the internet, but I did just come up with that just that second, and I'm very proud of it. <laughs> you should be. So, why? I mean, another reason why this is a mistake is because right after this conversation is when Don Bluth decided he was going to go independent, going to go indie. That was his, well, fuck it moment. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. So, on September 13th, 1979, his 42nd birthday, Bluth... Gary Goldman and John Pomeroy and which which were like the, the first people to come on board to Banjo the Woodpile Cat as a side project and nine other fellow Disney animators set out to start their own animation studio titled Don Bluth Productions. The group mm -hmm. worked on a few uncredited scenes for the Fox and the Hound but left early in production though it did cause a delay in the release of that film for Disney. Uh, Bluth was disheartened by the way the Disney company was run and I really think he took his reje rejection of Banjo, the Woodpile Cat, to heart. Probably so, you know. I mean, it's a thing. It was a thing that kind of came out of his own. Uh, it was his his own project, his own genesis. You know what I mean? And uh, I imagine that the combination of that going straight to his heart, and also you know being sort of the impetus for him to go independent, like probably weighed on him for a very long time. Looking back on this, you know, all, imagine all the hard nights as an independent animation studio wondering if what you did was even worth it. Uh, you know, if this thing is going to make or break you and your company and your family and everything else and thinking like, fuck, if I just kept my mouth shut in that meeting, I could have, I could have kept drawing for Disney. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True that the rescuers had been successful, you know, for Disney in the late seventies, it still wasn't like that classic Disney Walt feel. I, I kind of want to yeah. go back to Walt. Like it's really Walt and like the the old wise men. That's what they called the the original animators that that worked on Snow White and Pinocchio and all them. Mm -hmm. Like they weren't they were diverting from that and it was hurting the company. And so they split off and they released Banjo the Woodpile Cat as a short film in 1979, but it only came out in two theaters on opening day. There were talks to open it up before the Muppet movie, but it just never materialized. You know, I think it, at the end of the day, and I, I should go back and do this as well. I mean, looking at screen caps from this movie and sort of, again, as an adult kind of having gone back and watched a few of his, a few of his pieces, like you could do worse than to go back and watch this. Probably. I think it would be an interesting thing to do, especially if you grew up liking movies like Fievel or, or whatever else. It might be a good idea to go back and watch Banjo the Woodpile Cat and just see sort of the genesis of this company because it absolutely just looking at looking looking at the cover of the vhs it just drips <laughs> bluth you know what i'm saying it's, it's just him so don bluth productions officially moved into a building outside studio city in la and began work on an animated segment of the 1980s live action film xanadu um, if you're familiar with that hot piece of trash Apparently, there's an animation section in it. I have never seen the film. Um, it's something we probably should cover on this show just because we could just make fun of this thing and be like, 
an even worse version of our uh, Last Dragon <laughs> episode. I've never seen Xanadu. I have an NES game called Xanadu, but I don't think they're related at all. Oh, I think they are. Are they? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Xanadu, the role-playing game... I'll have to look into this. Continue! <laughs> so, simultaneously uh, working on the Xanadu project, they were also working on their first feature-length film, The Secret of Nim, an adaptation of the 1972 Newbery Medal winner Miss Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Uh, Bluth employed 160 animators during the production and agreed to the first profit-sharing contract in animation industry history. Unfortunately, it was only a moderate success in the box office despite critical acclaim and impacted even further by a 10-week industry-wide animation strike, uh, which actually the, the studios won that strike, not the, the, the unions. Um, but Don Bluth Productions was forced to file for bankruptcy, which is kind of crazy. I mean, looking back on it, you know, uh, Secret of Nim is a cult animation classic, and it caused the bankruptcy of the first company to create it, you know? I don't know. So much, so much of animation in the seventies was a very strange thing. You know what I mean? Just watching, because you learn a lot about it in researching Don Bluth, right? Like you, you, you get to see what is going on with Disney at the time, which was sort of. I mean, if you want to talk about the, I don't know, first three quarters of the last century. I mean, that was what animation was. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, at least on a, on, on a theatrical scale. And I don't know, it's just, it's interesting watching all this happen because this is just like this weird kind of timeline or or almost like a uh, like a, like a like a heart monitor like in like an uh, EKG or whatever, right? Just watching this kind of like blips of Disney being like, "Oh, we're doing okay." Shit, sorry guys. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. My bad. Did we release another racist cartoon? Shit, sorry. <laughs> Uh, so Don Bluth's next film would have been an animated version of the Norwegian folktale East of the Sun and West of the Moon, but was never made due to lack of financial backing. I, I highly suggest if you're interested in this at all, this idea of, of this Norwegian folktale, you should check it out because there are, um, production drawings and, and just sketches and stuff. And they're amazing. I mean, there's stuff you would expect from him, from Don Bluth and the people that worked for him. So what do they do? You know, they file for bankruptcy. You just get back in the saddle. In 1983, Bluth, Rick Dyer, Goldman, and Pomeroy started the Bluth Group, another company with Don Bluth's name, and created the groundbreaking arcade game Dragon Slayer, which let the player control an animated cartoon character on screen. Uh, This was followed by the 1984 release of Space Ace, a science fiction-based game of the same technology, but which gave the player a choice of different routes to take through the story. Have you ever played Dragon Slayer, Caleb? I have. I suck at it. Yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> I, and I don't think it's a good game. And I don't think that anyone should play it. But what I do think is you should watch maybe someone else play it. Maybe on like a video service that would be similar to like maybe YouTube. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't I don't think Dragon Slayer is a good game. I don't think it was probably. I, I don't think it was a good game in 1983. Probably. Either. Right. Uh, no, and it was too expensive too. I don't want to go into that because I actually would like to cover both of these games on a future episode of this show yeah. um, in great detail. But I, I highly agree. I actually would rather the Bluth Group had made Dragon's Lair into a movie and Space Ace into a movie. I think that they yeah. had excellent premises, excellent characters mm-hmm. um, that just would work. You know? Yeah, I, I was going to say that they're beloved for a reason. It's just the gameplay's bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bluth when, uh, not only created the animation for Space Ace, but he also supplied the voice of the villain, Borf. Ah, yes, Borf. A good name. Uh, work on Dragon's Lair sequel was underway when the video arcade business crashed in the, the 1985-ish era. And Bluth was, again, left without a source of income, and the Bluth group filed for bankruptcy on March 1st of 1985. Uh, now, you ended up with a sequel. Dragon's Lair 2 Time Warp, which was released in 91, but was rarely seen in arcades um, and is largely not talked about. Um, Yeah. Seen several releases elsewhere as well. Of course, um, given Dragon's Lair's kind of like, uh, you know, stature in the gaming world and gaming history, but uh, also not worth playing. (laughs) (laughs) Not not at all. No, unfortunately not. Uh, once again, Bluth, Pomeroy, and Goldman established a new company with a new business partner this time, Morris Sullivan. Uh, they called it Sullivan Bluth Studios. It initially operated from an animation facility in Van Nuys, California, but later moved to Dublin, Ireland to take advantage of government investment and incentives. Hell yeah. Smart business work. 
Uh, they also helped boost animation as an industry within Ireland. As you can imagine, in the 70s, Ireland wasn't exactly a hub of, uh, you know, Western culture in general. You know what I mean? Like the UK and Ireland. UK uh, as a whole, probably all right. England had your uh, Monty Python stuff and everything like that. And they were doing a lot of work with animation and still animation um, or, or, or still art put into live animation things. Um but yeah, this really helped kind of put Ireland on the map as like, yo, look, we've got this, we've got a, a studio here, and not only do we have one, but it's really good, <laughs> you yeah. know. Uh, simultaneously to the move to Dublin, big things were happening behind the scenes where Don had met Steven Spielberg, due to the kind words of Jerry Goldsmith, the composer for Secret of Nim. Uh, Spielberg wanted to team up on a project, as Steven is a huge old school Disney fan, and he was blown away by Nim. This led to an interesting partnership, one that I would love to cover on an official Secret of Nim episode, um, and it gave us an extremely successful film, 1986's An American Tale. At the time of that movie's release, it became the highest grossing non-Disney animated film of all time, uh, grossing $45 million in the United States and over $84 million worldwide. That is insane. Yeah, the main character uh, in American Tale, Fievel Moskowitz, would later go on to become the mascot for Amblimation, which is Spielberg's animation company. Um, there's a studio responsible for the sequel, Fievel Goes West, We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, and Balto, which probably people have actually seen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was closed in 1997, though some members went on to work at DreamWorks. Yeah, it's uh, animation is a small world, you know, like... If you haven't, you know, everyone who worked at Dream, you know, at DreamWorks probably worked at some other animation company, unless they were young and just got their start at DreamWorks. Yeah. And even modern animation, even even now with how insanely huge that industry is, uh, if it's a Western company or a Western audience, um, shit, man, at this point, a lot of work is still done, uh, you know, between keyframes and things like that. Like a lot of work is still done in Thailand and uh you know, Indonesia and places like that. I mean, it's it's still much smaller than you would think. Rebecca Sugar and her brother are involved in every fucking cartoon on Cartoon Network right now, it seems like, and it's weird to think about. Hmm. That's the uh, Steven Universe, uh, Girl Who Made Steven Universe. Oh, okay, yeah. And her oh, and her yeah. brother, her and her brother are like some in some way, shape, or form touching kind of li- a little bit of everything on that network, which uh, is actually really neat. But yeah. That's really cool. I mean, that reminds me of, of Bluth. I mean, imagine if Disney had said, okay, you have vision, you have talent, we trust you, let's find some things you can do that are not a feature-length film, or or that are, you know what I mean? Like, I just mm-hmm. feel like they had something, and Ron Miller, I don't think he saw it, and I and I think that if we had, I mean, it's cool, because we got these other movies. We have, you know, Bluth Studios, Bluth Productions, and a whole bunch of other companies with Bluth in the name, um, but... And, and and great things were done, but also some really bad things are done, which we're getting really close to. So hmm. uh, let's continue on. Their success led Spielberg, Bluth, and George Lucas to collaborate on The Land Before Time, which was quick, quickly released in 1988, um, which did even better in theaters and on home video than An American Tale did, which is crazy to think about. And it would be followed by numerous horrible direct-to-video sequels. Yeah, the most recent of which was released in 2016, that franchise is somehow still going, and I don't know who it's for. <laughs> I don't know it's who kids. it's for. Yeah, but are, are I mean, look, I don't know. My kids run in probably a more unique circle than even most in this country at this point, or maybe, oh, shit, I don't know, or maybe they're right there in the middle. But the the thing is, at least my children, like they're not they're not opening Netflix and kind of kind of mindlessly looking at something and being like, "Oh, that one has a dinosaur on it. I want to watch that because it has a dinosaur." Like my kids are fucking connected, dude. They know what they know what things are. They want to watch the thing that's popular that everyone else is watching, the thing that people are talking about or, you know, the thing that's on Cartoon Network that is now on Netflix. You know what I mean? Right. My my kids would never turn on some direct direct to video, direct to Netflix land before time movie. You know what I mean? I have no idea who this is for. That's an excellent, excellent point, actually, um, that a direct-to-video market doesn't exist in 2018. So maybe we have seen the end of these, unless they're going straight to Netflix or something like that. Yeah. Which, which is possible. Knows. Netflix is buying everything. So, yeah. Uh, so Bluth broke with Spielberg and Universal Pictures before his next film, 1989's All Dogs Go to Heaven. 
And although All Dogs Go to Heaven only had a moderate theatrical success, due in part to it being released against Disney's The Little Mermaid, it was highly successful in release on home video. Yeah, apparently it was uh, like literally one of the best VHS tapes sold of all time at one point, at one point selling 3 million copies a month. Honestly, because of how prolific the title of that movie is, I don't know, I've seen it when I was younger, I don't remember anything about it really. I think there's a German Shepherd in it, but... Uh, like, I assume this movie was like some sort of crazy runaway hit. And then seeing that it kind of didn't really do well in theaters, I'm like, well, shit. I mean, this latter part makes sense here, I guess, then, right? Yeah, I mean, at that point, we're talking about the Little Mermaid marks the renaissance, the return of, of Disney, right? Hell yeah, so it does. It seems like after, I'm sure people who watched Secret of Nim at Disney were like, look at this. This is amazing. Why aren't <laughs> oh, we shit. doing this? Yeah, exactly. Like they were, they were really lucky that that movie didn't take off. I think personally, and then mm-hmm. he teams up with Spielberg and does an American Tale, and beats him. And now they really have a problem. And then, and also, we didn't really talk about how big of a get Spielberg is at that time. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. It's funny looking back on it. The Land Before Time is dinosaurs, right? And then what comes out in what nineteen ninety one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. Yeah, <laughs> He's I know. Obsessed. <laughs> He is. He is. And he, he is a he is a six foot tall, seven year old living out his dream, making making movies about dinosaurs and shit. And I think it's beautiful. Yeah. And then later on, his amblimation company makes we're back a dinosaur story. Like, that's not coincidence. It's basically Spielberg came in and was like, I think you should make one about dinosaurs and another one. <laughs> hey, guys, I love I love the idea for this movie. It's great things. You know, I, I already have I've kind of a cast in mind already. Things are going to be wonderful. But I was wondering. Uh, one little hitch in the script I'm reading here. How many dinosaurs are in this movie? And can we up that number potentially by 300%? <laughs> all, the, all the dinosaurs all the time. Uh, much like other intellectual properties, this film was followed by sequels and other media. So there are like three, I think, sequels to All Dogs Go to Heaven. Sure. Yeah. And of course. Fucking, of course. Why not? <laughs> None of which uh, involved Bluth or any of his companies. So. No, because again, at the time, you could just shell this out to some to some uh, contractor in Taiwan that will literally crank this shit out for you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the next four Sullivan Bluth production films, which Don directed himself, were complete flops. These include 1992's Rockadoodle. Bumbelina and a Troll in Central Park, both released in 1994, and 1995's The Pebble and the Penguin. Now, Alex, have you seen any of these? I've seen Rockadoodle many times. Didn't know people didn't like this movie. It is... I hate it now, honestly, because it's very, it's very like, rockabilly and, and just, I don't know. I thought like, you were going to defend in, it for a second there. Like, I'm not, I'm not into it now, but it's... Dude, it's fucking weird. There's a rooster who's, who's there's a rooster whose voice calls the sun and that <laughs> and that he abandons his humble rural southern home to go become a rockabilly rocking boy and the the whole place gets flood dark or flooded or something. I don't fucking remember man it's been a while but the whole point is it's a there's a lot of supernatural shit in this movie because Bluth was very obviously into this kind of sort of fantasy aspect uh, of things so like there and owls also can we talk about fucking bluth and owls he likes owls a lot they're fucking everywhere they're in every single movie and they're always in point and positions of great power they are powerful animals you know, they are turn their head 180 degrees they're powerful. What, a t- what a totem you know what i mean but yeah. anyway i don't know rockadoodle is a fucking weird movie that's all, that was what my point of that is it's it's not just haha look at this animated movie it's got a talking rooster like yes that's weird on a surrealist kind of level but this movie is all about a rock and roll rooster who is also apparently a fucking wizard. <laughs> do, you, do you remember his name? No. Chanticleer. Oh, yeah. That's because it's based on a French play. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, I don't want to tip my hat because I actually do want to do an episode on Rocket Doodle, but apparently this the idea for this movie, uh, the Chanticleer movie, was pitched in the 1930s at Disney and it had been rolling around in pitch meetings for decades (laughs) and there's probably a good reason disney never picked that shit up don come on dude yeah 
Uh, I mean, Rocket Doodle alone like nearly destroys Sullivan Bluth as a company. They had a co- acquired a new partner, Suncrest Pictures, which is an Irish studio, um, prior to All Dogs Go to Heaven. But that company got scared to death after the mediocre uh, box office results for the film, so they split, giving the rights to the animation cells uh, from prior films in the process to Suncrest Films as as like a, a, a part of the deal in the, uh, the the resolution of the financial issues. Yeah, I mean that's a huge that's a huge uh, sort of supplemental source of income, right? Because you like you like we mentioned earlier, you can recycle these things in ways that are of great value. Not only can you use animation cells whole cloth if you think you can get away with it in your movie, but um, because so much of animation at the time involved tracing um, or or you know recreating sort of the same scene and the same the same animation over and over again uh, for you know say backgrounds or or whatever else, you can sort of almost like rotoscope new characters by tracing the old frame of characters from the old cells you have. You know what I mean? Like you can, you can reuse these things in very interesting ways. Not only that, but the secondary market, I mean, selling old, yeah, yeah. Old, old cells is a huge thing that Disney does or did. I don't know. I'm sure they still do it, but it's probably not nearly as big of a, of a market as it was, but people wanted pieces of the films. You know, they loved them. Mm -hmm. That was a, a good way to get it. And now we have the internet. People just download images, you know, but Back in the day, even in the 80s and 90s, there were huge animation fans who would buy these things for hundreds of dollars. Yeah, yeah. I look, man. It's about it's about three or four different times a year. I look I look around on eBay for days on end, trying to find myself a really cool Dragon Ball Z animation cell that I'm willing to spend whatever they're asking on. Uh, I've yet to find one. Hey, if you have a Dragon Ball Z animation cell you're trying to get rid of, uh, hit your boy up. Give me a quote. Would you pay over nine thousand for it? No, fuck you. Fuck that joke and fuck you. That's bad. No, uh, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay nine thousand dollars to have lunch with Toriyama. Fair. That's fair. Uh, plagued by financial instability, they shelved the Sullivan Bluth uh, Group and became Don Bluth Productions. Their newly expanded U.S. studio was forced into layoffs, and the Irish Parliament was looking to force the company to dissolve. Um, the entire company, as the employees in Ireland weren't getting paid. But they were saved. Hong Kong-based company Media Assets and Ireland's own Merlin Films came in and dropped $20 million to fund the next three flops that we mentioned. Um, it was a very, <laughs> very bad investment. You know, also, uh, I don't remember Thumbelina at all, but I remember liking it as a kid. And I remember my little sister liked it as a kid. Um, but... What the fuck do I know? Apparently, this movie was bad, huh? Uh, the reviews are basically that it's saccharine and there's nothing in it for adults. Like it's basically aimed directly at children. Right, right, right. It's a strawberry shortcake movie. Exactly. That's you know actually I mean? a really good analogy. You're on the on a roll tonight with these analogies, Alex. Hey, man. Thank you. Uh, so I just want to point out that Thumbelina alone co- uh, cost twenty eight million to make, uh, but only made eleven million dollars on release. That's that's among the hardest flops we've ever even mentioned on this show. It gets worse. A Troll in Central Park, which was released four mm-hmm. months after, made seventy one thousand dollars. I have literally I, I cannot recall that name ever being mentioned in my vicinity. Like in my entire life, I didn't know. I keep hearing a troll in Central Park, and I'm like, I can't even picture what that is. I imagine it has to be animated, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't even know what the hell that movie is. And that is at least the fact that I can't even pull up any sort of reference or image. I mean, damn. $71,000? Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. I, yeah, it is a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes to this day. <laughs> Zero. That's unfortunate, man. What the hell happened here? I actually don't want to talk about it because, again, this is worthy of an entire episode. This this one actually both we should probably cover both of these movies in one episode because they're kind of tied They're they're their fates were tied together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting looking at it. Basically, in short version of it, uh, they were so concerned about Thumbelina succeeding. It kept having to push it back because other uh, Beauty and the Beast came out like the, the fall previous. And then uh, Five Old Goes West came out like. Uh, a month before and so they they pushed it back you know a month away and it just it just wasn't very good you know Mm. it got canned by the by the critics and just kind of 
disappeared. And then four months later, with zero promotion, no marketing dollars put into it, they released A Troll in Central Park. And no one knew about it. The critics hated it even more than Thumbelina. Mm. And it just disappeared. It's like it's like when, you know, EA or someone takes one of those third-party studios they own and they drop a game like fucking november 23rd amidst call of duty and all this other shit like that and they put no effort behind it and then you look at it seven years later on a steam bundle and you're like what the fuck is this ea put this out what are you yeah. talking about <laughs> yeah it's basically it's been determined to already be shovelware so they just make it so right 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 cut your losses i guess i don't know that's these are dark times mr bluth and then you know it didn't get any better uh, the pebble and the penguin it Made four million dollars. Um, That's more than seventy-one thousand. Yeah, it's better than seventy-one thousand. But Bluth and Gary Goldman hated it. They even went so far as to take their names out of the credits. The problem is, is Bluth's names on the production company. It says Don Bluth Productions presents in the beginning. But you know what? This film actually did pretty well on home video for some reason. So this entire movie is just that that Ice Age short, right? Where the squirrel chases a nut. Um, kind of, yeah, yeah. It's a penguin trying to take a gem to his bow, trying to woo her to marry him. And of course, there's an evil penguin. Looks a lot like an owl. It's a giant buff penguin with a yep. cape on. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I love this movie. <laughs> this seems great. Uh, oh, are you fucking kidding me? This seems great. I would watch it. Oh, no. All right. There's a scene in which one of these penguins like kind of snarls and has like very human kind of horse. Te- I don't like it. Oh, they all have teeth. Yeah. Yeah. They all have the, teeth, but oh, it's, it's very strange to see a bird with teeth. So in 1993, amid the production of the last three Sullivan Bluth failure films, uh, Don and Gary Goldman were approached by 20th century Fox. This is very interesting. So while all this, all these dumpster <laughs> fires of films are being made a good time for vultures to sweep in. Yes, so 20th Century Fox comes to them and says, hey, we'd like you to open up a new animation studio in the United States. Uh, you know, it's a deal that almost didn't happen. As Bluth pointed out, that Fox already owned media assets, which was funding the completion of Sullivan Bluth, essentially making them employees of Fox. However, due to the disagreements with media assets and probably seeing those projects for what they were, which is total fucking garbage, uh, Bluth and Goldman decided to head up Fox Animation Studios. In Phoenix, Arizona, stealing a majority of the animators from Sullivan Bluth in the process of that company's closure, which is also fairly common whenever a company closes or merges down like that. A lot of times people go with with their fearless leaders. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have already moved, you know, once or twice with Don. They're like, well, I guess we're going here now. Had to be a bit frustrating, I'm sure, for their families, but uh, they need a paycheck. So you go where the money is. Yeah. And if you're, you know, I don't know, it could have been frustrating for the families, but also think about like if if you've been involved in this for any number of years and this is in any way, shape or form your norm, like maybe that's just how your lifestyle is. You know what I mean? It's a military kind of thing. Like, like, I don't think military people are mad about moving all the time necessarily. You know what I mean? No, I think they know what they signed up for, but it can, it can be tough, you know? Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, you're changing schools and shit, you know? So with the new studio and the power of Fox behind him, Bluth scored a hit. A return of Don Bluth with Anastasia, 1997, which grossed yeah. uh, nearly $140 million worldwide and established 20th Century Fox as a Disney competitor. Yeah. I mean, initially. That's what everyone yeah. was saying. Yeah. I'll, I'll allow that statement. Uh, <laughs> 1997 uh, media review. Yeah, that's sure. Anastasia was fucking cool. And honestly, I wish that more people talked about that movie. I wish that I talked about that movie more. Uh it's pretty damn cool. I like the I story. I like the tale. Really, you should watch it, dude. It's cool. It's it's a it's a good thing. Well, you like it, so we should definitely. You know, I mean, we're, we're, I think we should do a whole month on Don Bluth. You know, maybe do all of the the movies, and then we can mm-hmm. talk about this. This is one of the last ones. It would be really good if we did them in chronological order. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it falls in the wheelhouse. It's ninety seven. You know. Yep. Um, but unfortunately. As we kind of alluded to, this success would not last. Um, Blue's futuristic space adventure Titan AE, released in 2000, made less than $37 million worldwide despite a $75 million budget, and 20th Century Fox Studios shut down their facility in Phoenix. 
making Titan AE the last traditionally animated film released by 20th Century Fox in theaters until 2007's The Simpsons movie. All right. I need a moment. Blue's work with uh, Fox Animation Studio is really interesting because it is entirely human focused, right? Mm -hmm. There's not this Mm -hmm. deep focus on anthropomorphic animals, which is, as we all know, Bluth's shit, right? So I think that there was a lot of creative freedom taken away from Don Bluth, I feel like. I don't feel like this was a this was just his natural evolution as an animator because it it doesn't check out for me. That he just went from being like, Man, I've been doing this for forty years and you know, or whatever, and suddenly, because I had a couple flops or whatever, I guess I'm just gonna change everything I do and try up try up human people now, I guess. You know what I mean? I feel like someone told <laughs> him to do that. Um Anastasia, like I said before, I really like it was fairly successful. Um it's a good movie. Titan AE is really fucking cool. It's a cool thing. It's it's very uh very bland as far as sci-fi goes. You know, as an adult, you're not going to watch it and be like, wow, interesting new ideas, guys. Um it's a very run-of-the-mill sci-fi movie, but the animation is really, really cool. And the style of it is really, really cool. And I think that it's a thing that existed at the same time as um what was that fucking one? Treasure movie? Planet treasure planet it's very similar in style like that that style of of you know the road to el dorado and all those movies around the late 90s and and early 2000s the tail end of traditional animation like they're fascinating pieces in the timeline and i really i really like titan ae for that reason i think i think it's really cool and it's got a style to it that nothing else seems to have yeah i watched it and i thought it was pretty good i was actually surprised that it wasn't as successful as i felt like it should be you know watching it 10 years later in circa 2010 ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but it kind of seems to be the way that Bluth films go. Like they age better with time, which is a really weird thing to say, but it seems to be fair. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that all of his movies stand the test of time for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say a lot of them are probably better taken outside of a theater context as well. Mm-hmm. At home. I don't, yeah, I, I don't know that any of I I wouldn't I don't know that you know if you if you told me if you tried to place me in 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 you know 1988 or whatever it was I don't know that you could drag me out of the house to go see Land Before Time in a theater you know what I mean <laughs> yeah but it's a damn good thing to sit down and watch with your kids on the couch you know also you don't need to take your kids to the damn theater to see that movie and have every like you don't need your son to see you cry you know what I mean <laughs> yeah your son should never see you cry yeah. never. Yeah. Never. Men don't cry. We break walnuts with our balls. God, I, don't I would know. love to see that. Actually. I don't know, man. I've seen I've seen I've seen some weird things with breasts being oh, destroyed yeah. destroyed and crushed. I don't think mm-hmm. you can do it with balls though. We're we, men are weak inherently. Right. That that specific <laughs> place is very weak. Yeah. <laughs> uh so in two thousand two, Bluth uh, and video game company Ubisoft just uh developed the video game Dragon's Lair three D return to the lair an attempt to recreate the field the original dragon's lair laser disc game in a more interactive three-dimensional environment it did for just a moment sound like you said dragon's lawyer and that's probably a cooler idea than this i'm not gonna lie and i love oh dragons and medieval shit but dragon's lawyer seems like a fucking fantastic adult swim game i would love to play that game dragon's lawyer sounds <laughs> incredible it's like a harvey Birdman attorney at law but with dragons yeah yeah and you got you have to go before a uh you have to- you gotta go before a medieval council and plead to the king as to like like your case and 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 how many sheep you're allowed to steal from the fields per year like per your contractual agreement with the previous king you know what i mean oh mm-hmm. this is great yeah i would play that game <laughs> <laughs> also this gary goldman guy keeps coming up yeah and i keep thinking it's gary oldman every time i read his name and then in researching this guy like i found that both gary oldman and gary oldman's wikipedia articles link back to each other at the top. So Gary Oldman says at the very top, not to be confused with Gary Goldman and vice versa. Nice. <laughs> which I think is very cool. Um, I spent probably the first two hours researching Don Bluth this week, uh, thinking that it was actual Gary Oldman. And I was shocked that he looks as good as he does for his age. Um, and then as it turns out, one, it's not him at all. And two, he wasn't even alive for a lot of Don Bluth's career. No. So. Yeah, no, he was not. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Uh, so as of 2012, Don Bluth and Gary Goldman, there he is again, uh, were seeking funding for a film version of Dragon Slayer, which I would see in a heartbeat. I would watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, after apparently sitting in development for over a decade, the project raised over $728,000 via successful crowdfunding campaign as of February of this year. So this, this crowdfunding is still going on. You can still donate if you want to. I'm going to tell you, this is my personal opinion. Don't do that. Yeah, uh, this is also my personal opinion. Sorry, Don. Don't back anything in crowdfunding. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> my general policy I, as well. I have done it several times. I have never been burned and not received a thing I paid for. Knock on wood, I guess. Uh, but don't don't pay money for things that like you're not even sure if they even exist yet. You are not an investor. I'm sorry. It's fun to pretend, but you're not. Yep. So Don uh, has continued to work in animation and video games uh, throughout the 2000s. And in 2004, actually released two books, um, The Art of the Storyboard and The Art of Animation Drawing. Um, I'm sure they're wonderful. And then on February 3rd, 2011, it was announced that Bluth and his game development company Square One Studios were working with Warner Brothers Digital Distribution to develop a modern reinterpretation of the 1983 arcade classic Tapper. And they titled it Tapper World Tour, in which players uh, play as a bartender and serve drinks to thirsty customers. They previewed that game at E3 2011, and it's never been seen since. Hmm. Hmm. Almost as if um, there was somebody just like made a fucking phone call one day and Mm -hmm. said, hey, Don, what are you up to right this very moment? And he was like. Hanging the fuck out, drawing sexy rat ladies. What's up? <laughs> and uh, they said, do you have time to draw basically 14 stages and 14 different types of drinks? It's going to take you about six hours, and we could make this a video game. Um, and then they couldn't get the funding for it. That's what I imagine happened. <laughs> I think what happened, actually, is that uh, Warner Brothers lost or didn't actually have the rights to Tapper. I wonder who has the rights to Tapper. I don't know. But that's the only thing. I mean, considering it was playable in 2011 and was never released for mobile, like it's the only thing I could think of is somehow the rights fell through, which is pretty common with, you know, 80s arcade games. Like the rights holders can be hard to find. Um, A lot of times they were sold off in bits and pieces because those companies failed. Especially early arcade stuff because of that crash in in, uh, the gaming, you know, uh, 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 culture, I guess, whatever the hell I'm looking for here, the word I'm looking for here. Uh, Yeah, I mean... Look, we talked about it on our NES episode. That's that time. <laughs> like, it's no wonder shit comes up in people's closets or like people don't know who owns Tapper or, or whatever it might be, because like we don't know how many Nintendos got sold. Right. You know what I mean? Like some shit was just on paper, man. And that's unfortunate. So in in closing, Bluth is still alive, um, actually he still lives in Arizona and he runs a website. So I think he opened in uh, 2009, right? Yeah, he opened it in 2009. Uh, it's Don Bluth University as well, which is basically like classes. So he's got the DVDs you can buy on his website, but he also has Don Bluth University, which are, um, I don't know if they're like the same thing as the DVDs. It's kind of murky. Uh, apparently, like after you do a year's worth of courses, you can like go meet him in Scottsdale for like a final project thing or a final talk or whatever. And it's still ongoing, which is pretty cool. I mean, considering his he's in his seventies now. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the idea of a seventy-year-old white man using a computer is astounding to me. Yeah, you know that's true. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, the the more I think about it, seventy is not nearly as old as it was when I was younger. And a lot of these people in their seventies probably fucking worked on computers their whole life. You know what I mean? We're getting to that point, Caleb. Think about that really hard. That, like people approaching their 70s were programmers mm-hmm. you know what i mean oh yeah uh, it's very interesting you mentioned that i was watching the film ladybird which um was nominated mm-hmm. for academy awards uh from last year and one of the main characters the father of the the main character um is a laid off programmer and he was in middle management and he can't get a job because he's basically discriminated against because of his age he's very fascinating because mm-hmm. he's very capable he has a he has an mba and you know he has done an amazing programming work you know he's got a degree in mathematics and they won't hire him yeah that's crazy 
that is the life of Don Bluth. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I think he's a very fascinating person. I know we didn't go into depth on individual titles because we're going to save that because I'm very excited to talk about all of his films. They are wonderful. And what he brought to our childhoods and the industry of animation for all of his failures. I mean, I mean, the failures in business, but as far as art goes, these are gorgeous films. His character designs are amazing. Um, I mean, the backgrounds in some of these films are on top uh, in my top 10. I mean, like, I mean, my all time favorite film for art aesthetic from an animation standpoint is Sleeping Beauty. That's because Ivan Earl did a majority of the backgrounds yeah. on that. And he's an amazing artist. He was an amazing artist. Um, my parents actually got to meet him before he passed away. Uh, but like, That's when neat. we talked about character animation, <laughs> Don Bluth. 100%. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We're nearing the end of that era in like a very real and finite way, right? Like Don Bluth is getting old and within the next 15 or 20 years, I don't think anyone from this, that, that classical era is going to be around anymore. You know what right. I mean? I mean, just, just law of numbers. You know what I mean? At some point, just like World War II vets, you'll be counting them down on your on your single hands at some point. And it's tragic because this was – I mean, Don Bluth will be remembered probably as long as we talk about animation um, for his work. You know what I mean? And I don't know. It's, it's super interesting and it's crazy to see that uh, a lot of the stuff has gone to the wayside with the advent of digital animation. I, you know, it's like anything and there will be waves. I, I feel that some people want to get back to that in some way, shape or form. And just the methodology mm-hmm. of, of other parts of the process will probably allow them to get away with going back to it. So like maybe instead of coloring, you know, maybe they can color digitally, but animate by hand and that will save enough time in the production to make it a viable product. Um, yeah. or, you know, cell shading, you know, maybe that's, that's the new version. I don't know. I mean, 3D, 3D animation is cool, too. I, I like a lot of those movies. Um, Minions movies, are, I've watched them because I've been forced to because my children are young. But, um, gross. yeah, it is pretty gross. But after, after like, the third watch, you know, you just, your brain just goes numb and it's fine, you know. Mm. Uh, I don't allow Minions products in my house, so. You're lucky. I don't, I don't have that choice. And on that note... <laughs> <laughs> i think we should end the show uh guys we're part of the ninja pancake network you know that if you listen to us at all if you don't you can check out other shows on the network bombshell jackets a show about tom clancy's the division loot shoot lane which is all about blizzard games um gna podcast which is about alcohol and nerdy stuff and video games so if you're like into micro brews and stuff uh you can listen to that podcast i was on it uh, a couple weeks ago uh, you can we can thank Speaker Freaks for the Geek Squatch theme. Check out their music at speakerfreaks.com. Subscribe to Geek Squatch on iTunes. Rate us and leave us a comment. Uh, visit our website at geeksquatch.com. Email us at podcast at geeksquatch.com. There's a lot of stuff at geeksquatch.com, guys. Just go there. Check it out. There's places to contact us. Um, you can follow Alex at WA Hirsch on Twitter. And you can follow me at CalebMCC. As always, leave us a voicemail at 540-692-9165 where the nostalgia that fuels you now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know... <laughs> guys, you know, Francis Ford Coppola made a fucking Dracula movie and I want to talk about it soon. Which one's that? Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, that was, oh, was fucking... Francis Ford Coppola? Yeah. Oh, that's that great line where uh, uh, Keanu Reeves has got that horrible accent and he talks about yeah, oh, it's yeah. a whole sequence where he's just like totally deadpan. It's yeah. really bad. Jonathan Reeves is Jonathan Harker in that, or Keanu Reeves is Jonathan Harker in that movie. But yeah, it's a Coppola joint, dude. That's like, <laughs> what? I want to talk about that movie. Dream by night, wish by day, love begins this way. Loving starts when open hearts touch and stay. Sleep for now, dreaming's how lovers' lives are planned. Future songs and flying dreams, hand in hand. Love, it seems, made flying dreams so.
Dreams to bring you home to. 